As we looked at the book of Acts last week, uh, as, as we have even looked at it in the previous three weeks, we've seen that the book of Acts is a, an account written by Luke to record the specifics of Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and the early church. When Luke starts off uh, the book of Acts, he even references his gospel. He says, I've already provided an account that I've put together that contains all uh, that you need to know about the life of Jesus. He, he, he puts this into place so that we can see uh, part one, the life, the person, the life of Jesus. And now we come to part two, where we see the continuing ministry of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And last week, as we looked at the text, we saw the resurrection. We saw, or sorry, not the resurrection, we saw the ascension. The ascension, we said last week, is something that is hugely pivotal, but something that is massively underemphasized. It's something that we often gloss over so quickly. But the way that Scripture speaks of it, when we look at it in, in reality, in the way that these uh, first century readers would have understood it would have been that Christ's resurrection and his ascension are really a part of this promise that God would exalt Christ. Jesus conquers sin and death. He destroys our last enemy. And it's through the resurrection we, he, we see that in Romans that Christ is raised for our justification. And it's through the ascension we see that there's this, this receipt, this stamp, this paid in full, this approval by the Father as Christ ascends in this cloud of glory. And so through the book of Acts, we see that it's the resurrection uh, is, is hugely key. It is a massive thing that the disciples preach, that they're wanting to communicate. It's not that they have this Messiah who has done all these great works, but that Jesus is alive and he's ruling and reigning. He's leading his church. And so this is the tale of the book of Acts. Now, when we come to this point in, ch in chapter 1, in verse 12, Jesus is already gone. He's ascended. He's with the Father. He's out of view. The, the angels speak to the disciples there in uh, verse 10 and 11. As they're staring, they say uh, to, to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're saying, guys, it's time. He's not, he's not going to reappear. This isn't the transfiguration part two. He is gone, but he will return. And in that, they're reminded of the mission that Christ gave them, this commission. But before they can get to that, they have to work on uh, their, the restoration of their group. And so as we come to chapter 1 this morning and we look at verse 12, we're going to look kind of at it in two parts. The first part uh, that we're going to look at is this idea that there is restoration brought about through the resurrection. We'll see that. And then secondly, we will look at witnesses of the resurrection. This kind of rooted in some of the criteria that is given. So we'll look at it in two parts, restoration through resurrection, and then secondly, witnesses of the resurrection. We start off in verse 12. We get the disciples on their way back from this journey. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount of, uh, called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So we have here a list of the disciples. We have what happened after this. Jesus ascends. They return to Jerusalem. They are um, at the Mount of Olives, this, this mountain called Olivet. It's near Jerusalem. We're told it's a Sabbath day's journey. So this means that 
uh, it was within the allotted amount of time that you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath day to like make it not be considered work. So it's like, okay, this is the amount. It's, it's within the zone, zone one of what you're allowed to walk. You can only go so far. Uh, and so it's within their zone. They walk back and they enter into uh, this upper room, we're told. Now, the first response of the 11 is to return to Jerusalem. They they listen. I, I love that this is recorded for us because their first response is that they don't listen uh, but until the angels bring to their mind that Jesus has ascended, that he's gone. They're there staring into the sky, just waiting for him to appear, but Jesus has already told them what to do. And it's not until the angels speak to them and remind them of this that they listen. And so they actually obey. They go back to Jerusalem. They do what Jesus told them to do. And this is the first uh, action that they participate in as members of this new community of the ascended Christ. I love what is recorded for us here because it's something that's just so simple. This is the requirement of all believers. When Jesus speaks, we listen. We obey. We do what he says. The disciples are not just hearers of the word. They don't just hear the words of Jesus, but they actually do it. This is the very lowest level. They're not doing anything else. They're not, they're not trying to make up their own plan. They're not trying to figure out strategize. They're, they're not trying to get distracted along the way. They simply just obey. They don't try to be overly spiritual or do anything crazy. They don't try to make things like they're, hone their message on the way back and make it really attractive. It's just Jesus said to do something. We are going to do it. And I think that's the first thing that we need to understand as followers of Jesus. It, it, it's that we must not be only hearers of his word. We have to be doers. We have to obey him. And obedience, obedience is what separates the multitudes from his followers. The followers of Jesus obey his words. There are many who will come and who will listen and will, who will hear the words of Jesus, but those who are his disciples, those who follow him, listen to him. They obey his words. And so they do this. In verse 13, we find that they entered this room. They go to the upper room uh, where they were staying. This is, we, we don't know for sure, but this is possibly uh, the same room where they held the Last Supper. Um, it, it's also possible that this is the same room where they're gathered after Jesus' death and Jesus appears to them after the resurrection. And so maybe this room has some significance to them and they're like, okay, this is the place where we call home base when we go to wait. And so uh, we're going to go here. And as they come to this room, we get some insight into who was present. We find uh, that there's the disciples. We get a list of the disciples. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, the son of James. So we have a list of 11 disciples, the 12 disciples minus Judas Iscariot. Uh, and then Luke isn't done accounting those who are present. He uh, he, we, we find out a little bit more in verse 14. Read on with me. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we find out also that there are women present. These are most likely the same group of women who uh, provided for Jesus during the life of his ministry. They were probably the ones who traveled with uh, Jesus to Jerusalem from the region of Galilee when he went up uh, to the last week or so of his earthly ministry as he went up to present himself and went through his Passion Week. This is probably the same group of, of women. Uh, and then we also find that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers are present. Jesus' brothers, uh, we are told, are mentioned in Mark chapter 6. They're called James who we find writes the, the book of James, uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So these are uh, four additional guys who roll up. Now, it's, it's noteworthy that these people attend because Jesus' brothers did not believe in him during his ministry. They were like absolutely opposed, and they thought Jesus was off his rocker, and they didn't want to listen to him at all. Here's, uh, some, here's two different passages where this is kind of recorded for us. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, 
Jesus, he goes into a home and there's a crowd gathering together. And so uh, it, it was like super packed. And so here's what happens. Uh, it, it, he's got this packed because he's preaching. He's declaring the word of God. He's making these crazy claims that people are like, only God makes these sorts of claims. In Mark chapter th- uh, 3, verse uh, 21, here's, here's what they say. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. They're calling Jesus like, Jesus is crazy. Sorry about Jesus. Like, we don't know what happened to him. What's going on with this guy? In verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So they were trying to like, they couldn't get into the house and they send word and be like, hey, can you just like tell Jesus like we're outside? Like he needs to come out here and like just come home with us because like he's basically like embarrassing all of us and this is getting out of hand. So Jesus's mom and his brothers are all out here like, we don't know about this. Later down in John uh, chapter seven, we, we read this. Uh, verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so what they're saying is it sounds like they're being all for him. Like, oh yeah, you got to reveal yourself to him and to everybody and make sure that like people know about you. But here we get the little side note in verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. They're saying this because they're just trying to challenge him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Now it's only after his resurrection that they demonstrate belief. This is the only time where they change from being people who are doubters and calling Jesus crazy. Like, sorry about Jesus, he's a psycho. Uh, to all of a sudden, now they're here when they see the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 records that Jesus appeared to his brother James, then to all the apostles. He shows up and communicates his resurrection to James. And James, he goes on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that Jesus' brothers continue to be members of the church. So this odd group of people is gathered together, the disciples, 11 disciples, uh, and then we have all these women, and Jesus' brothers, Jesus' mom, and, and there's, there's some other people present. But the question is, what are they doing in this upper room? What, what are they doing here? Well, we find that they were all there in one accord, verse 14 tells us, and they were devoting themselves to prayer together. They're devoting themselves to prayer together. This is one of the most important things that they could have done. They are corporately gathering, both in belief. They believe that Jesus is God. They believe that he is who he said he was. That he uh, came to the earth and lived a perfect life on our behalf. He was crucified for our sins. He paid the penalty that we would have had to pay. He was raised by God on the third day for our justification and ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God to make intercession for us, to mediate for us. They believed all these things, and so they gather around this belief, and they gather for prayer. What they're, what they're doing in that time together is they're desperate to hear from the Lord. It's like, okay, what do we do now? We know we're supposed to be in Jerusalem. We don't, we don't really have much to do. We're waiting for this promise of the, of the helper, the power that God would give through the Holy Spirit. What do we do? So they pray. They spend time asking the Lord, desperate to hear from him. And this is the posture that we would desire to have as God's people. I think we need to be aware of this, that we are a people who are united around common belief and submission to our Savior. We are united in this manner that we are freely confessing that we need a Savior, that we need help. And so we're just simply a bunch of broken people who are coming in and saying, like, I'm messed up and I need help. We're, we're a hospital where Jesus brings restoration through his resurrection. Where he comes in and he makes the broken whole. And, and he, doesn't just, he doesn't just patch you up with duct tape, but he makes you new. He, the scripture says, behold, all things have been made new. 
The old has passed away. And so you don't, you don't just get, get a nice paint job and fixed up a little bit, but really underneath you're still broken. Jesus makes all things new. He brings restoration and healing. And as God's people, we want to be united around our belief. We want to be united in prayer, waiting on him, wanting to hear from him, desperate for the Lord to speak. And this is something that, you know, we've been trying to grow in as a church at the beginning of the year. One of the things that we said we wanted to work on was learning to pray together. And, and, and I've been super blessed because it feels like the Holy Spirit has been working in us, helping us learn to pray together. And we've been getting some momentum in, in that, not because we've been better at praying together, but we've been coming to say like, Lord, we believe that this is important and we're going to try this and we're going to keep going and we're going to grow together and there's going to be some growing pains here and there because we're not comfortable with each other and maybe we don't like to hear our own voice out loud or whatever, but we are just enjoying it. And there have been wonderful, rich times of prayer that we've enjoyed. And we're going to keep growing in it, but we want to be united in prayer. And so... They find unity in prayer. Now, at a moment, Peter, uh, we don't know how many days they've been meeting, how many days they've been waiting, how, how long they've been in this time of unity and praying. Um, but Peter kind of steps up in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, dot, dot, dot. So there's kind of like this little informative note for us to get to. Now, here's what happens. Peter stands up. He leads the charge in, in speaking to all who are present there. And I want you to note something interesting about this. It, Luke does something um, interesting to help us understand the, what Jesus is trying to accomplish here. He says there, there are about 120 people present. Now, we've got the 11 apostles who are there, minus Judas. So the, the group of the apostles is broken because they don't have 12 anymore, and Jesus picked 12, so there's clearly like a massive vacancy there. And then we've got... Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's there. Jesus' brothers, okay, so that's like plus four. And then also, like, random women, which I'm guessing was probably not, like, making up the rest of that 120. There's probably some, but not all. So there are additional people there. And so Luke throws out this info for us. Now, he doesn't do this just to kind of give us a, a rough estimate. Oh, there was like about 120. The number is a bit more significant than that. Now, not in the way where you would be like, oh, here's the future of all the Bible codes. This is not what we're getting at. Here's what we understand from this context. 120 within the Jewish culture was the smallest number. It was the smallest number in the Jewish or tradition for a population that could have its own council. So if you had 120 people in your city, then you could convene like a synagogue there. You would be able to have a, a, a synagogue or, or a religious place of worship. And so what, what Luke is saying here is like, we have enough people to begin this new church that Jesus has established. Within the Jewish culture, they would, they would read this and say, Okay, you have, you have enough people to, to have your own space, to have your own thing. It would give them a little bit of credibility in, in that sense. And in the Jewish uh, tradition, there would be a person, well, one person would step up as a leader, as a judge who would rule over or represent for every 10 members. So there would be somebody who would account for the ministry of serving every 10 members there. So, we have 11 leaders in place, the apostles that Jesus chose, minus one. So what we're seeing here through this text is that it seems like the beginning of this structured community is here, but Luke's making an observation that a 12th disciple is needed. We're one short to minister to this group of people. So Peter gets up and speaks. Look at verse 16. Here's what he says. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So the first thing that Peter highlights in his, his first part of his speech is that the Holy Spirit has already spoken a prophetic word beforehand through King David in the Psalms. And so he, he, he goes to that. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And I like what he does here. First, he says the Holy Spirit already spoke that this would happen. And so what he's saying is, what happened with Judas? It wasn't really a mistake. God, he wasn't blindsided. Like when, G, when Judas Iscariot was walking with Jesus through his life for all for, for that time of ministry, for those three years, there was never a point where Jesus was like, oh my gosh, Judas, like, I can't believe you betrayed me. He knew that this was going to happen, but yet he loved him anyways, fiercely, fervently. And so Peter highlights that the Holy Spirit has spoken this. He cites Psalm 69, uh, verse 25. So what, what is Peter doing here? Why, why does he just all of a sudden decide to do this? Well, Peter, he's caught on to what Luke has pointed out. The broken state of the disciples. He's aware that there's a vacancy. So he's like, look, Judas, he fulfilled this, uh, this prophecy. And we have enough for a, a, a synagogue. We have enough for a council. We have almost enough leaders. But, but we're one short. Now, 120 and the 12 leaders are also significant within the context of Israel's history because it was said that the Messiah would bring about the restoration of Israel. And so the disciples for the Jewish mind also represent, these 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes. And so right now we're missing one. So there's another component to this that is being emphasized. So if the apostles are to be witnesses of the resurrection and join in the mission of Jesus that he gave them to bring the gospel to all of Israel, right now we only have got 11 apostles, so one tribe is not going to get the message. And so to bring about the restoration of Israel, the disciples must first be restored. This is what Luke's trying to get us to understand. So Peter sees his brokenness. He knows the scriptures. And he does exactly what he's seen Jesus do so many times before. He goes to the Psalms to look at the prophetic word spoken through the Holy Spirit. So how did Peter know to do this? I mean, Jesus has done it before. But how did Peter know to do this? In Luke 24, before Jesus ascends, we find this word from Jesus to his disciples. Luke 24, verse 44. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what Jesus does there is he tells them, there's tons about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. They all point to Christ. They all point to him. And then in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus gave them insight in how to interpret the word of God. And so Peter he looks at he he thinks of Psalm sixty nine verse twenty five. He says, "Oh, this has been fulfilled in the betrayal uh, and the apostasy of Judas." And he describes it as much in verse sixteen. He says, "Judas he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, and he was numbered, for he was numbered among us, and was allotted to share in this ministry." So he's saying he was one of us, but he became a guide to them. And so the reason that there is a need for another apostle is not just because Judas dies, but because he's defected completely from the disciples that Jesus has chosen. He's abandoned his share in the ministry. And so Peter brings this 
up. He brings this to their mind so that they can see that this has been fulfilled. Now, Luke, before we get part two of Peter's speech, before we get that, we get a parenthetical note for the readers because everybody in the room knows what's happening. They're like, oh yeah, we know why you're saying this. But the readers don't know. We don't know. Why, why is Peter talking about this? Well, we find out. Here's what happened to Judas. 18. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, speaking of Judas, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. So, we get a parenthetical note for the readers, because we don't know what happened, but the, reader, the people in the room do. They know why Peter's saying this. Now, I want you to see this, the reason for this note. He's trying to bring us into the situation. Judas has defected. He has died. He is not there. He's not going to repent. He's not going to be replaced. This is a done deal. It's sealed. Judas defected. He left the disciples, not for any other reason than, verse 18 tells us, his own wickedness. It was his own wickedness that led him astray. And so he goes out, he uh, hangs himself, and we find the account that he hangs himself there. He's there for so long, uh, and, and he's undiscovered, that he eventually, uh, his body falls and he splits open. It's like a real nasty description. And uh, he's discovered, everybody kind of hears the tale of what happens, and so they call this spot the Field of Blood. And this, uh, his wickedness... His decision, the choice that he has made, results in his death, and it results in the religious leaders taking the money that he was paid to spend on this field in which he killed himself. Because, like, who wants to buy that sweet field after someone killed themselves in it? Nobody. And so we return from the parenthetical note uh, here in uh, verse 20 to the second portion of Peter's speech. The second portion is yet to be fulfilled. The appointment of Judas's replacement. Verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So Peter here says, We need to come up with somebody to take his spot, to fill this role. We need another apostle. Now, Peter's not just making this stuff up, okay? I, I, I want you to understand that. That's something that's hugely important. He's not coming back with the boys, and they're like, yeah, this is going to be awesome, this mis mission that Jesus gave us. We're going to really participate in it. It's going to be excellent. He's not just saying, okay, what do you guys think we should do? He is rooting his, his thoughts in God's Word. He's saying, here's what the Scriptures say. And here's what we've seen Jesus do so many times. And here is what we ought to do in response. This is what we should do in those moments where you feel like, I don't feel like the Holy Spirit's speaking to me. I don't feel like, like, I don't feel like the right decision is, is there. Like it just doesn't sit as comfortably with me. For the disciples, Jesus was not around, and the day of Pentecost has not yet come, and so they don't have the Holy Spirit either. So they're kind of in this area where it's like, well, what do we do? They do what they should have done, and they rely on God's Word. We know what God has said in His Word. He has given us that to uh, use, and so when we feel like, like uh, uh, David in, in Psalm 42, where he's like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for me. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm so thirsty. Like, I can't, I can't get anything. And I'm seeking you, Lord. And I'm, I'm looking for something, but, but I, I'm not getting it. In those moments where you feel like you're reaching out to the Lord and you're asking him and he's not answering and you're like, what is happening, Lord? In those moments, those are the moments where you need to say, I'm going to go according to the word of God because he has already spoken. That is what guides us. We listen to his word. Now, fortunately, we live on 
the other side of Pentecost. So we also have the Holy Spirit, but there are moments where the Lord is trying to stretch us, to grow us, to help us. And so we want to look to God's Word for our direction, wisdom, guidance in life. And so Peter does this. He cites Psalm 109, verse 8, uh, here to say we need to pick another guy. And so in verse 21 and 22, we find that Peter sets forth the criteria for this next uh, apostle. And essentially what Jesus is looking for here is witnesses of the resurrection. Witnesses of the resurrection. Verse 21. So one of the men who, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us witnesses to his resurrection. So Peter, he sets forth this criteria for the next apostle, and the criteria is rooted in the mission that Jesus gave them as leaders of a restored Israel. You guys are going to go and bring the gospel. You are going to testify about my resurrection. And, here's, and that's, that's the whole purpose, that they would be witnesses of the resurrection. Not, that, not just that they would say that, oh, it's, it's happened, but that they would say, I was there. I was an eyewitness of it. It has changed me and transformed me. I, uh, I know other people who it's changed and transformed. But being a witness of the resurrection is the heart of matter, but, but they look for a, um, a more complete vision of Christ's work, his ministry, as part of the criteria. They want all the way from the baptism of John, of when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, all the way through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The resurrected Christ is what the apostles preached throughout the entire book of Acts. This is their message again and again. Again and again, they're saying, Jesus whom you crucified is alive and he is ruling and reigning. Jesus changes lives. He's alive. They're saying this again and again and again. And so the selection of this apostle has to be someone who was an eyewitness from the beginning. Because the apostles were eyewitnesses, they could guarantee the entirety of the gospel account. We were there. Now, they would need this because it would enable them to speak in power and authority as ones who have experienced the life and ministry of Jesus. But beyond that, they would need this because they would experience great persecution. And they needed to be able to stand in the midst of difficulty, opposition, persecution, and even death. And they had to be sure that those who would testify were eyewitnesses. No one's going to die for a lie. But these men were sure that Jesus was raised from the dead. They were sure. They couldn't get someone who was like, oh yeah, I was there, maybe. They needed someone who could surely testify and was willing to put their life on the line. Now, only two men qualify for this. Verse 23, we find they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Seems like Joseph like had like a screen name problem, like he kept changing it. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to be called. Uh, Matthias, here we got this other guy who he has like only one name. But it looks like there's four guys here. There's only two. Two guys. Um, they meet this, this criteria. And here's what they do. Again, in verse 24, they pray. Now, I want you to note here, um, before they start making these decisions, before they start making, like, you look at the method and how they're going to choose this, they use some wisdom. They come up with criteria. The Holy Spirit uh, is, knows, like, 
when God knows the Holy Spirit's going to come, he knows who he needs to work in. And Jesus is selecting these, uh, he's guiding these men. And they're looking according to his word. But, but they are changed by the resurrection. They're like, the resurrection is so pivotal and important that we need to make our decision based upon that. And so as they come to this, they, they're going to pray, they're going to ask the Lord, but they're also just using some, some understanding personally of how important the resurrection is. They don't just take anybody in the room, they narrow it down to two people first. Okay, so here's what they do. Verse 24, they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which was Judas, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now they were already in prayer previously. They're united in prayer, right? That's the whole point of their gathering together. But I like what they do here. They don't say like, oh, well, we've been praying and so we're pretty spiritual and so like we probably could just make a decision. They ask uniquely and specifically for the wisdom of God regarding this decision. They ask him. They don't make assumptions, but they seek him first. And I like how they start this off. Here's the prayer. You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Right? Isn't that amazing? They've transitioned and now they're praying, but the Lord that they're speaking to is the ascended Christ. It's the resurrected Jesus. When they prayed with Jesus before, like a lot of times... Jesus taught them to address the Father, but now they speak to Jesus directly. You, Lord, know. You know. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand, hearing our prayers, leading the church. And so they say, Jesus, you know the hearts of all. You know. So show us which of these two you have chosen. Saying, Jesus, you've, uh, you've picked all the apostles already. You've selected us in the first place. And so we are asking you to show us who it ought to be. All right, so now in verse 26, we find the method by which they choose us. In verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So for modern readers, casting of lots probably feels super strange. Uh, you know, we're like, this is like the same as flipping a coin. Uh, and in a sense, yeah, that's pretty much kind of what it comes down to. Here's what lots looked like uh, in, in this time. It was a traditional way of hearing God's will in Judaism. And so it had a context in Israel's history. And so this was not something that would be foreign to them or would be uncomfortable or would even be seen as uh, incorrect. Casting of lots in the situation was the right way to go about this. They, they, um, they, we have to consider the context that they were in. This is how, how throughout their history they would often hear from the Lord. So the way that it would work, lots were, were depending upon like where you were at, were, were like sticks with like little markings on them or like small stones with like different symbols and the way that it would work is like you'd find like a little area and you would take your sticks or stones or whatever you had that were marked, little dice or whatever, and then you would kind of like throw them out there and then the result would be interpreted. Now, the casting of lots is something that happens throughout all of uh, Israel's history. W one kind of place that you uh, probably have heard of or, or remember is uh, even in when Jonah is running away from the Lord and he's like on the ship and like they cast lot to, lots to see who it is that like the reason for the storm, you know, and he's doing this with like all these uh, sailors from like other pagan nations here. But yet the Lord is the one who causes the lots to fall upon Jonah. So then they're like, look, what's the deal? And then there, as a result, Jonah like spills his guts and he's like, look, I'm running from the Lord, the one who created like the earth and the sea. And basically, here's what you need to do. And then they do that. And then, and then, you know, Jonah gets swallowed by the fish. And then what happens? All of the sailors, they all start like worshiping the Lord. They're like, okay, we know that this is like the real deal. We know that the God 
of Jonah is like the true God. Now, the, the reason that they do this is also found in Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 16, so they're not just off the rocker. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The law is cast into the lap, but every decision, it's every decision is from the Lord. So this was something that would be common to them. We come up with these things, we ask the Lord, we pray, we cast the lots, but the decision is from the Lord. And so the Lord would often work through this for his people. Now, it had context for them, but also they had confidence in casting lots because they knew that the Lord was the one who had already selected the next apostle. And they knew that it was the Lord who could see into the hearts of men. And for the disciples, this was hugely important because like basically Judas, uh, you know, he didn't turn out to be as faithful. The Lord knew that that would happen, but they are like, Jesus, we really need someone to come through here as the 12th disciple. Someone's got to be faithful because we're trying to accomplish this thing that you asked us to do. So they're, they're like, we, you know, Lord, who you want, and you know their hearts. You know the hearts of all men, so you got to pick a good one. We don't know why, but here's, the, here's uh, that's what happens. The Lord selects through this method here. Now, I want you to note one thing here before we move on. It's important for us to understand that there are no further examples of casting lots in the New Testament. This is the last one. Because after this, the Holy Spirit comes, and they, uh, he is the one who speaks to us. And Jesus told us this would be the case in John chapter 16, he, in verse 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So lots are gone by the wayside now. We don't use lots anymore because we have the Holy Spirit. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit leading God's people in wisdom, guidance, decision-making, mission. And so they cast lots, verse 26, for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So Matthias, he's in. Boom. Number 12. Now, you don't hear about Matthias in the book of Acts or really anywhere else in the rest of Scripture. So, like, he's in. You don't hear about him. Ch uh, church history tells us uh, Eusebius reports that he was one of the 70 disciples that Jesus originally sends out in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Later, church tradition uh, puts forth Matthias as the one who presents the gospel to the Ethiopians. Like, that's his region that he's in charge of, and he goes and proclaims the gospel to the Ethiopians. Um, and so... Matthias is in. We don't really hear much about him in Scripture, but it's not weird that we don't hear much about him because in the book of Acts, uh, of all the, all the apostles listed in verse 13, the only ones we hear about for the entire book of Acts is Peter, James, and John. Everybody else is just like omitted completely. Like you don't hear about their stories. So it's not weird that we don't hear about, um, you know, Matthias. There's not like tales of Bartholomew in the book of Acts or anything like that. And so it's important for us to understand, you know, the decision is from the Lord. Now, if you've been in the church for any sort of time, you also kind of have like this thought maybe in the back of your mind and you're thinking like, well, what about Paul? Because like, you know, Paul said like, I'm an apostle and Jesus selected me and like, how's that all work? Look, here's what we know. Matthias was not the wrong choice necessarily. You know, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, they shouldn't have used lots. That was a huge error. The idea here is that there is a brokenness within the disciples. And in order for them to continue on in the mission, they need to fill this spot of apostleship. They need to accomplish this. And therefore, in filling this vacancy, what they're also saying to Jesus is, we accept your mission. We're telling them, we're ready. We are ready to do what you have called us to do. And so they are sealing the deal here. Now, Paul, he also didn't consider himself 
to be like he didn't he wasn't like all against like Matthias he wasn't like oh yeah you should have saved that spot for me even in first uh, Corinthians 15 when he describes himself he says I'm an apostle not on the basis of these criteria because he wasn't there he didn't observe Jesus's ministry from the uh, from the baptism of John all the way through uh, the ascension he wasn't there he didn't witness it he says I was one who was born out of due time However, he says, I'm an apostle on the basis of Christ selecting me to be one. So, he doesn't even object to Matthias's election here in uh, the book of Acts. Now, in the book of Revelation, we see that the names of the apostles are written on the foundation of the city. Whose name is going to be there for number 12? I don't know. I guess we'll find out when we get there. Because Jesus definitely picks Paul. And uh, the, in this text, we have to respect the testimony of Scripture. We have to respect what, uh, that, that the disciples did what Jesus told them to do. He gave them the ability to interpret, to look at those Scriptures and apply them. We, he says he specifically gave them that. So it might not reconcile with us completely like in our minds, but it doesn't need to. You have to respect the testimony of the scriptures. The disciples ultimately are witnesses of the resurrection. They were the ones who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Now, Paul certainly did witness the resurrected Jesus. We find later in Acts chapter 9, it's Jesus himself who appears to Paul and like kicks him off of like his horse and is like all on his back. And he's like, look, here's who I am. I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. And so Paul definitely witnesses the resurrected Jesus. And it's their job to be witnesses of the resurrection to the world. Now, you and I are also called as God's people to be witnesses to the resurrection. Both to the resurrection of Jesus, which maybe we didn't see Jesus physically with our own eyes, but we feel the effects of the resurrection of Christ every single day. It is our job to communicate that Christ is alive, that he's ruling and reigning, because we have been made alive together with Christ. And so we have not seen the resurrected Christ, but we have been resurrected ourselves with him. Flip over, lastly, we'll end here, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Here's how Paul describes it in Colossians 2, verse 11. He he links these two together, the resurrection of Christ with the resurrection of his people. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So God raised him from the dead. And verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. You see, for God's people, because Christ has been raised and we've been able to be raised with Christ through God's work, we now have the testimony of the resurrection This is the tale and the tale that blows minds all over the world that God is a God who makes the dead come to life. This is our message. And so as we go out, you can know that you can speak in power and authority because you yourselves have been made alive with Christ. You can come as someone who can testify of what God has done in Christ, and what God has done in you because of what he has done in Christ. He enables us to do this work 
Now we also get to do it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which is like way better because the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us that he will tell us uh, what to say when we need to say it. So that way we don't get all tongue twisted and, you know, like, oh, I don't know about that one. That's a really tough question. We have the guidance, the wisdom, the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are a people who are in need of a great Savior, who've been made alive together through the blood of Christ. We're a blood-bought people, and we're a people who have been raised together. And so we find unity together, corporately, just like the disciples did as they waited and gathered in this room. We find that same unity in Christ. The Lord's going to rock the world. We'll see through the book of Acts. Through this tiny group of people, He's just going to turn it upside down. I'm excited to see how He continues that work in the modern-day book of Acts with us as we press into Him as we're united in Christ and He sends us out to help more people meet Jesus. It's going to be amazing as we grow together in our love, our desire to see Christ exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the faithfulness of your son that you perfectly obeyed so that we might have new life. We're thankful that you have given us of yourself. And ultimately, Lord, we're thankful that you have given us the, the filling of your Holy Spirit, that we might have your desires, that we might act according to your will, and that we might accomplish all that you've called us to do. Lord, we know that we don't go alone, but that we go with your equipping. And so, Lord, we lean on you this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to see the areas in our lives where we can be faithful to you, where we can demonstrate what it is to be someone who is changed and transformed through the blood of Christ. Lord, and as you have made us alive, you've made us brand new, you've resurrected us, we want to look to you as the author and finisher of our faith. We want to act in obedience to what you're calling us to do. And Lord, draw us to yourself. We want to fall more in love with you. We want that to be our song. We love you. Desire to know you more intimately. We love you, Jesus. Amen.